The Catholic Channel Sirius XM 129 presents Just Love with your host, Monsignor Kevin Sullivan, Executive Director of Catholic Charities of the Archdiocese of New York. Welcome to Just Love. This is our weekly conversation about what's going on in the world viewed through the prism of our Catholic social teaching. We look at things from our Catholic perspective, which focuses on the dignity of the human person, concern for the poor, solidarity among people, community life, family life, the dignity of work. All those things which are very, very constitutive to enhancing or when things go wrong, diminishing the dignity of the individual human person as made in God's image and likeness. And so that's what we do each week on Just Love. I'm delighted that you join us to hear our conversation. This week, we're going to be talking about a couple of things which I think are very, very interesting and are worth raising up. We're going to speak with uh, Professor Kevin Ahern about Dorothy Day, and uh, they had a very, very great uh, event earlier this week. So I'm delighted that um, that uh, he is joining us and we'll learn a lot about that. And then we're going to be speaking later on in the show with Tamara Payne, who is a co-author of the a book called The Dead Are Arising, The Life of Malcolm X, who is one of the very important kind of leaders in this nation with regard to civil rights and other issues impacting the Black community who was assassinated um, many years ago. So I'm delighted that we are going to be uh, raising up those issues uh, this this week. <clears throat> so Tom, how is your Lent going? My Lent's going well, Monsignor. You know, I, I mean, it just sort of kind of came upon us, I think, sort of quickly. It, it just, I'm not sure if it's earlier this year, but it just seemed to kind of sneak up on us. But uh, but so far, uh, I'm trying to, you know, I'm, I'm what I'm really trying to do is I'm trying to, you know, augment my prayer life. Um, I, I, I usually pray before I go to sleep. But then I have to admit that sometimes when I'm praying before I go to sleep, sometimes I fall asleep before the prayers are done. So what I'm doing is I'm starting a little bit earlier, my senior, and I'm making sure that I I just kind of stay with it and I complete my prayers. But uh, you know, but I usually try to do that. And I'm 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 still a rosary guy, so I I I try to say an entire rosary before I go to bed. So that's usually my that's usually you know what my prayer intention is at least for uh, for Lent, trying to think of others and think of praying. And, and particularly praying for the world today, Monsignor, and for peace, which, of course, we so desperately need. So, um, do, Tom, to uh, go a little bit further, when you when you pray the rosary before you mm -hmm. go to bed, do you pray it sitting up or laying in bed? I'm praying it sitting up now. I used okay. to pray laying in bed. And as I had mentioned, when I did a little bit later, I would wind up falling asleep sometime when I got to, like, the third decade. I would fall asleep, but now I actually sit up. So what I do is I actually sit up and and I make it intentional to pray the rosary. I have a very, very nice rosary my my folks gave me many, many years ago. 
so I still have that. So I make it a point to actually pray on the beads and and really, you know, usually in bed, I used to pray on my fingers, but I'm praying on the beads and I, 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 I'm, I'm very intentional about that. This okay. Time. Now, now, now it was under Pope John Paul II that he kind of added some mysteries. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So do you like those new mysteries? I, you know, Monsieur, I don't usually pray. I just pray the rosary. I don't pray the mysteries. I, I, I remember when he did, I think it was he called them the luminous mysteries, I think. And yep. he, and he included, uh, and what I liked about that, uh, was that he included, if I recall correctly, some of the, the life of, of Jesus, because I think so often, uh, you know, the other mysteries concentrated on obviously, you know, his, his birth and, and then concentrate on his passion and on those things that happened after the resurrection. But I kind of like the Luminous Mysteries because it gets into sort of uh, some of his his ministry during his life, which I think, you know, we, we, you know, we sometimes lose sight of. We sometimes concentrate either at Christmas on his birth or then we concentrate obviously coming up, which is tremendously obviously important on his death and resurrection. But we lose sight of, of kind of what came in the middle. And and I, as you know, Monsignor, that's what we at Catholic Charities do. You know, we concentrate on kind of what he told us to do to come in the middle, feeding the hungry and taking care of the homeless and all those other things. So I think I, I, I do like that there were mysteries that were kind of associated with that piece of his ministry, too. So, Tom, you were also at the event earlier this week, um, mm -hmm. the dedication of the Dorothy Day Center. Um, did you like the event? I did, Monsieur. I thought it was really, I mean, first of all, I thought it was really great. I, I mean, you know, I'm a Manhattan College alum, so I, it really made me feel great, you know, that Dorothy Day is, 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 has been given such a prominent place in my alma mater. And, uh, and, and I just think when you wind up going into uh, the new center, and I know Kevin's going to talk to us about this, but when you wind up going into the new center and seeing some of the artifacts of her life, to me, it was very moving because, again, you know, we read about Dorothy Day. We know about all that she kind of did uh, for the poor and, and about setting up the, you know, the houses of hospitality and starting the Catholic Worker newspaper. But when you see sort of the artifacts of her life, you know, you see the things that she touched every day. You see things that were important to her. You see her shoes. You see uh, a hat that she used to wear in the sunshine. It reminds you that she was a real flesh and blood living person. You know, she wasn't just this, you know, sort of person we put all of our intentions and aspirations on and 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 kind of we we look at her and we kind of put our stuff on her but she was a person and and i think that having those kind of relics and i think they are relics actually those relics of her that are kind of brought up for students to see i think is so important because it reminds people that you know saints weren't you know that much different than all the rest of us they lived everyday lives and they were given chances to encounter God's grace in every interaction that they had. And so that's kind of what they did. That's why they're, that's why they're holy, because they took the opportunity to kind of see opportunities God put in their way and then to do the right thing. So, so I, I really liked it. Great. Good. So let's go to, let's go to our guest, Professor Kevin Ahern, who is Associate Professor of Religious Studies and the co-chair of the Dorothy Day Guild and the director of the Dorothy Day Center at Manhattan College. Professor Ahern, thank you for joining us on Just Love. Great to uh, hear you again, Monsignor, and great to see you all. Great. You had a big week. So tell us about the big week you had up at Manhattan College. Yeah, well, yesterday after a 
many years of work, we finally opened this uh, center that has been uh, in the works. And uh, the the beautiful part of the center is there is an exhibit on the life and uh, life and legacy of Dorothy Day uh, that we hope can inspire more students to get involved in the things she cared about. So, um, so tell our listeners how did you get how did you get use a bad word, but how did you get hooked on Dorothy Day? Well, like many people, this was a question we asked uh, our panelists yesterday at one of our events. That uh, Tom Dobbins, who is who's on, who helps you, was was on there. And uh, like many of many people, sometimes Dorothy is always in the background. So I grew up in a family where the Catholic Worker paper was there. Uh, so I heard heard about Dorothy as a kid when I was a student at Fordham. Uh, I got went down to the Catholic Worker as a volunteer. So I was inspired a bit about that. Uh, and then in my doctoral work, I, I, I used Dorothy and the Catholic worker movements and other movements she worked with as a um, as a research topic. So uh, I approached Dorothy from several different angles. Uh, when I got into the classroom, though, at Manhattan College and watching how students were increasingly inspired by her life of witness and her understanding of Catholicism, that that really excited me more to do more with her and do more with with the movements she worked with. Uh, and at some point, I was invited to join the advisory board to the Dorothy Day Guild, the association working on our canonization, and uh, then eventually was asked to be co-chair. So trying to bring all, a lot of these things together with this exhibit. But uh, uh, it was about two years ago that Dorothy's granddaughter said, we have a bunch of items from her, from our grandmother's life, clothing, rosaries, blessings from popes, uh, various other things. Uh, is there a way we can display them? And so we started to work, uh, put put our brains together and work on figuring out how to create a display that would that would bring people into her life story. And so that's what we have uh, at the college right now. That is great. We're speaking with Professor Kevin Ahern, who is at Manhattan College. He is the co-chair of the Dorothy Day Guild, the director of the Dorothy Day Center, and he's associate professor of religious studies. So kind of to give us a little bit of the inside story on Dorothy Day. What would be a couple of things that you've learned in you over these years about Dorothy Day that maybe our listeners might not be familiar with? What is, give us a little bit of the inside scoop of her life that may not be all that public. Well, you might remember when Pope Francis came to the United States and he addressed a joint session of Congress, he lifted Dorothy as one of the five model Americans. Uh, and many people said, Dorothy who? Uh, but uh, Dorothy is, for those who might know her and those who know her might be familiar with her work with the poor, her activism for peace and nonviolence. Uh, they might know that she started a movement called the Catholic Worker, which is also a newspaper. Uh, I think it's significant that she was a mother and a grandmother. I think it's significant that she tried to live and witness to the gospel while also doing things like uh, changing diapers and and trying to raise a daughter uh, and trying to run a newspaper. You know, and and this was a time when women were were you know not leaders of newspapers or journalists or church movements. And so for for Dorothy to be doing this as a lay woman is just so impressive. I. I found uh, in reading some of her, as part of the canonization process and reviewing some of her diaries, one of the things that really struck me uh, was she had this very touching account of taking her daughter Tamar and some friends to get ice cream on a hot summer day. And as a parent, 
you know, I relate. I just gotta, I gotta yeah. interrupt you right now. To me, right now, they should just canonize anybody who buys ice cream in summer. They go to the top of my list. They get to skip the line. Well, exactly. And how? And so as a parent, one of the things I've realized is that the saints we uplift or the church, not not many of them have had that experience of buying kids ice cream. Uh, and so it's a great, great sort of in, source of inspiration to me to see things like that. But of course, you know, she was not afraid to get arrested for what she believed in. She was not afraid to get into trouble uh, and because she she wanted to preach the gospel. And that that inspires me and that inspires my students. So you mentioned that she was, you know, a mother, a grandmother, she had a daughter. Um, and this is a little bit shame on me that I don't know much. There's not there's not much conversation. Was she married or not? Well, so part of the questions about her is that she she had uh, different relationships with uh committed relationships with men and uh she had a short-lived marriage at one point uh but then she met and fell in love with this with this scientist this biologist foster Bataram. uh they were living on a beach bungalow on staten island and this this was before she formally converted to catholicism and uh, she she felt really drawn to 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 nature, to the beach on Staten Island. And crazy thing, she bought this beach bungalow with film rights to an autobiography she wrote, uh, an autobiographical novel she wrote in her 20s. Uh, and that's just like imagine Hollywood buying your film rights when you're in your 20s. She's an extraordinary person before she even becomes Catholic on this way. Uh, but when she draw is drawn into the church, she uh, she realizes that in order to live as a Catholic, she has to uh, either get married or 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 separate from her common law husband. And uh, so Foster Batterham, he was against the institution of marriage and against religion. And she begged him or pleaded with him or invited him to to just get married or to join her in Catholicism. But when he said no, uh, she sacrificed the love of her life. And the father of her of her children uh, for her faith, and but she maintained connections with him. And one of the things, the treasures that we have in our exhibit is a framed picture of a Madonna that he made for her year, decades later. They kept in touch, you know, as grandparents together, as parents to, as parents to the same daughter. Uh, and even though he was still against religion. He still respected her uh, and framed this this very simple frame of a picture of Mary for her, and I find that very touching. Yeah. So I guess, yes, Kevin. What you know, I think one of the takeaways, I think for for our listeners and for all of us, is that you know Dorothy Day's kind of path to or road of sainthood or of holiness was not maybe the most traditional, maybe not the way that people would think. And it maybe had some bumps in the road and maybe certain parts, times of our lives, maybe weren't moving all in the in the best possible direction. But that's not a disqualifying factor for being raised up as somebody who can inspire us. Absolutely. I, I mean, and if we also look at the communion of saints, we can see some of the greatest, some of my favorite saints have the same experiences, Ignatius of Loyola, Francis of Assisi, you know, folks whose lives were not a clear cut trajectory, but who always felt this tug or pull to this pilgrimage life. 
and I think the call to holiness, as the church teaches us, right, is one, is a journey, is a pilgrimage, is a path. Uh, and, uh, you know, Pope Fran I've been thinking a lot about Dorothy and holiness recently, and the uh, Pope Francis has this beautiful document, Gaudate in Exaltate, and in it he says, you know, uh, what does it mean to be holy? But it means to live the Beatitudes uh, and to practice the Matthew 25. And so I think uh, that's something that speaks to Dorothy, right? Dorothy, as Pope Francis might have said, uh, the Beatitudes were her identity card. Uh, and that's inspiring to students. That's inspiring to young people. That's inspiring to old people like me. Uh, and so, and it, you know, I think the Cardinal yesterday when he opened our center and blessed our exhibit, uh, Cardinal Dolan said that, you know, it's not that Dorothy needs to be made a saint. It's that we as a church need models like Dorothy. And I think that's absolutely that's absolutely a great way to to think about this. Yeah, we're speaking with Professor Kevin Ahern of Religious Studies at Manhattan College, co-chair of the Dorothy Day Guild, and the director of the Dorothy Day Center. You know, if I could move a little bit for a moment into kind of the crazy mixed-up world that we currently live in, um, it, it seems to me that we live in a world in which maybe a lot of people would write Dorothy Day off. Now, here's why I say that. Not because of, 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 of certain things, but this one issue is she made some mistakes, as we all do. But nowadays, we don't tend to forgive people mistakes. Mm. We cancel them. They did something 40 years ago, and therefore, they're no longer relevant. I mean, how do we deal with that in terms of, like, we make saints of people who've made big errors in mm -hmm. their lives? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I think that's a, a real challenge. and I, I But I also think it's something that in the time of Jesus, you know, Jesus encountered people who were excluded for errors or mistakes that the community thought that they made, and Jesus was seen as crazy for 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 eating meals with them. Uh, and and I think uh, you know we have to rethink what hospitality means in the sense in its fullest sense, and that's something that I think Dorothy challenges us to, right? Uh, hospitality to welcome not just the poor and the strangers and the widows and the orphans, as our as the biblical tradition teaches us, but hospitality to welcome those who have been pushed away, those who have maybe strayed, those who have made mistakes, right? That this is the you know the 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 parables teach us this, and Jesus's teachings too, right? Um, uh, but, uh, you know, I think Pope Francis reminds us that holiness and the roles of the saints are not perfection. They're not the plastic dolls that you might see and lift up that being human sometimes means making making mistakes. Right. Uh, and uh, so I think there, there's a lot that we can learn. We can learn with that. So, listen, Kevin, you got to you got to make me smarter because yesterday. I learned a new phrase that after all of these years, I had never heard before. So what is this social Catholicism thing? I've never Great. heard that phrase before. What's Great. So make me smarter. Well, many people might be familiar with Catholic social teaching, right? The official teachings of the know Catholic. Know that one. That uh, one I right. know. You know that one. Okay, good. Uh, and many be people might be familiar with church charitable organizations and groups and holy people that are inspired by that Catholic social teaching, right? right. And 
And so social Catholicism would, would include all of that, would include the official teachings of the church, but also groups and movements who are inspired by the church teachings and who, who are working to live that into practice, right? Uh, so it's, the, it's a wider term to include both uh, bishops and priests and the official teachings, but also the works of people uh, from below. And what's, what's really neat, right, is if you look back at the history of Catholic social teaching, is uh, popes have uh, solidified things things that have, were already come bubbling up from the ground up, right? The Pope John Twenty-Third talks about the official method of Catholic social teaching is the See, Judge, Act. Well, that was developed by these young Christian workers, uh, a movement within the church that were doing this, right? So the official teachings took what was bubbling up from the ground, right? And what I would see as a theologian, the Holy Spirit at work in social groups and communities and organizations and groups like Catholic Charities even, right? So I think what you're doing, uh, even with media, uh, is a form of social Catholicism. Uh, so beyond beyond just the official teachings. I have to ask this: Is there an anti-social Catholicism too? Oh, I, I would I would imagine I would imagine <laughs> yes. I think I mean I think there are maybe models of Catholicism, and Francis Pope Francis talks about this in Gaudete and Exaltate. Uh, people who are in bubbles and don't don't see the realities of the needs of the people around them. That ignore uh, what what Jesus teaches us in in the Gospel of Matthew that you know what we do to the least of of God's people and what we don't do, right? And so sometimes we're stuck in bubbles, and and our media culture obviously sometimes wants us to be stuck in these phones and social media or in our little comfortable zones, uh, and it's hard to get out. Uh, it's hard to get out. But I I had to tell you this. I I had taught a course on Dorothy Day two years ago. And I had a student who went down to the Catholic worker as part of that. And she had a very fragile relationship with the church. She, she didn't feel welcomed in the church, and she wasn't sure she could identify as Catholic anymore. After going to the Catholic worker, she discovered elements of the church. And she wrote and she said she couldn't believe that there were Catholics who actually practiced what they preached. She came into my office earlier this week. And she said that she's going back down to the Catholic worker on a more regular basis now, two years later. So there are people who, so there's a type of evangelization, if you will, by actually trying to live what Jesus teaches. Uh, and that's challenging. I mean, as a parent with three kids and trying to take them everywhere to doctor's appointments and practices and school and all that stuff, it's hard to, to we, I can't live like Dorothy lived. All right. I, it's hard for me to do that. I want to. But uh, maybe I can try to do something. Uh, and that's uh, that's at least what we're trying to do. So I'll tell you, as as a professor, you 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 are probably very familiar with the research that that the Pew Pew does on a lot of religious topics. Um, probably a decade or so ago, Pew did did some research as to what Catholics, thought were very important to their faith. And what was very intriguing is the top two items, which pretty much tied as very, very important for their faith, were belief in the resurrection of Jesus and helping the poor. That those were the two highest ranking items for Catholics, mm -hmm. which to be honest, didn't surprise me. But I think there is a part of our genuine kind of Catholic spirituality, which kind of gets the fact 
that that what we do with and toward others is integral to our belief in God and our belief in Jesus. Absolutely. I look at look at the lives of the people that we recognize as great saints. Someone like there's a new film coming out about Mother Cabrini, for example, an amazing witness. I mean, what she did is incredible, just like Dorothy, right? Uh, at a time when women weren't weren't allowed to do these things. Uh, or Elizabeth Ann Seton, uh, or, or, or another woman being considered for sainthood, uh, Mother Mother Rose Hawthorne, right? These these great models of people who and why are the, the why does the church lift them up as models? In part because they're they're concerned for the poor. And they're living the beatitudes and living. Blessed are the people. Blessed are the peacemakers. Right, working out the the gospel in the world, uh, and that's a challenge for us. To, that's a challenge, I think, for us to communicate. Uh, but I think shows like this uh, do a, do a gr great job of doing that. Um, and but we have to. The challenge is how do you take that concern for the poor and put it into practice and be in an effective way. Uh, and actually a genuine way. And so uh, I think communities are needed. I think church organizations are needed. And I think, uh, you know, groups like Catholic Charities, groups like the Catholic Worker, and there's so many other organizations out there, St. Vincent de Paul, uh, and other organizations working on this that that should be supported and people involved in. Kevin, let's go back to, uh, to uh, Dorothy Day and her canonization. For our listeners, could you kind of... <clears throat> walk us through the process like you know and then i'm going to ask you a betting question at the end but but so you know where how far in the process are we and how what's still to come and what's got to happen that's great. And our you can find people can find out more information at dorothydayguild.org. And if you want to support this, we're welcome to do that. Uh got to do that pitch there. But uh no, we so Dorothy's uh, cause began within the Archdiocese of New York uh, about in the year 2000 was the some steps were taken there. Uh and uh the uh, that was the diocesan phase. And as part of the diocesan phase of, of canonization, all uh, anything that the the individual being considered was involved in, anything they wrote had to be found and had to be uh, put into a special format. So what made Dorothy's case challenging was she was a journalist and she wrote a lot, and we had a lot of her documents. So we ended up figure ha having to compile about fifty thousand pages of documentation that were sent off to Rome two years ago. So to begin the second phase, which is the uh, which is the canonic the second canonical phase, which is the Roman phase. So uh, at, her, at this first level, when she when the cause was opened or the case was opened in New York, I think about it like a legal uh, legal case and uh, making the argument for her uh, that her sainthood. Uh, she was named and with Vatican approval as a servant of God. So when we talk about Dorothy Day today, we're talking about Dorothy as servant of God. The Vatican now, the dicastery uh, that's working on the causes of saints is now trying to go through her these 50,000 pages. Uh, and there is a, a relator, which is someone so, a named, a priest that's been named in the, in the Vatican structure to help follow us. Uh, and they'll come up with a document, almost like a dissertation that will summarize her life and her cause. Uh, if that's accepted, and then uh, she can be named as venerable. That's the second step. The third step comes when we get talk oh, about. So Kevin, yeah. Give, yeah, I know you can't predict. Yeah. But how long does that take? 
Oh, I, I would hope that that could be that in best case scenario, I could hope that could be in a year or two would be my my hope. My real prayers is that venerable can happen can happen soon. Um, Kevin, but, I got I got to tell you, you wouldn't give your students that much time. Get it done by the end of I, the semester. Tell I wouldn't that, tell that guy in Rome. But, you get know, off, get off, but, get off the mark and get it done. But you know what's helped is Pope Francis wrote a forward to a to an Italian translation of one of Dorothy's books that was released over the summer. For one of her old books was re-released, and Pope Francis wrote a forward to it. So when the Pope writes a forward to a book, uh, that kind of helps helps the process along a little bit. So okay. we're we're praying for that. Uh, and but the big things are is trying to hope for. I mean, a, the big step will be identifying potentially, God willing, a miracle, uh, or to, and then the second one. For the first one for blessed and the second one for uh, for for sainthood, uh, we have some potential potentials there. If anyone has graces or favors where they've prayed with Dorothy that they would like to report to us, uh, the Dorothy Day Guild website has information to to do that. If you are praying with Dorothy or want people to pray with Dorothy uh, for specific things, you can go to that website as well and 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 let us know, and we will certainly add you to our prayer list. Uh, so, but we're, we're hoping that the next steps will keep, we'll have more to celebrate because there's a lot of, there's a lot of hard news in the world, as you know, Monsignor, uh, and, uh, we need some good news. We need some good news. Well, your good news, what you're doing is good news for the rest of us in so many ways. You're teaching, you're working on the Dorothy Day thing, and I might say your vocation of raising three kids, that we don't talk as much about that as being a very, very exalted vocation of being married, being uh, a good spouse, being a good parent, that that is, to be honest, that is an incredible vocation that we need a lot more of in the world today. So thank you for your vocation. Thank you, Monsignor. Tom, Ke professor Kevin Ahern, the Associate Professor of Religious Studies, co-chair of the Dorothy Day Guild, director of the Dorothy Day Center at Manhattan College. I think we should ask the president to give you a raise. you got a lot of titles up there. So I think you should get a raise for everything you're doing. Anyway, thank you for being with us on Just Love. Just love. Just love God. Just love your neighbor. Just love yourself. And our world will be more just than it will be more compassionate. We'll be back in just a moment on the Catholic Channel, Sirius XM 129. Now, let's get back to Just Love and your host, Monsignor Kevin Sullivan. Welcome back to Just Love. Just do it. Just love God. Just love your neighbor. Just love yourself. And our world will be more just and it will be more compassionate. We're talking about those things going on in the world through the perspective of our Catholic social teaching. We just spoke about Dorothy Day and a very, very kind of powerful, important person in American Catholicism, as we talked about when Pope Francis came to the United States, oh, almost 10 years ago now, uh, he spoke about the fact that um, she was one of the four American Catholics that he spoke about before Congress. And she is now beginning the beginning the process of maybe one day being canonized at as a saint. She kind of made the first step. There are three or four 
additional steps that need to be taken. And so she's on her way to being a saint. It takes a while for this to happen most of the time. So um, let us go to our next guest. Our next guest is Tamara Payne, who is co-author of The Dead Are Rising, The Life of Malcolm X. Uh, Tamara Payne, thank you so much for being with us, making the time to join us on Just Love. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me. How are you? I am just very, very good this morning. Um, so Tamara, would you kind of give our listeners a little bit, would you let them, they can hear your voice, but give them a little bit of your background so they know who's uh, who's talking this morning. Sure. Um, my name is Tamara Payne. I'm a co-author of The Dead or Arising Life of Malcolm Metz with my father, Les Payne. A uh, little bit about my father. He's a, a veteran journalist uh, who Pulitzer Prize winner, um, worked with Newsday out in Long Island, New York. But, um, you know, he was very passionate as a journalist to inform the public so that the people can learn to uh, the, meet the information to make informed decisions. And uh, he built his career out in Long Island at Newsday and he was he moved up the ranks there and he was really important covering important stories like the heroin trail, which he was part of a three man team, reporting team, investigative team, and they won a Pulitzer Prize for that work. Um, he also covered Sweto Uprising in, in 1976 um in South Africa and and many other stories those are just some of just a few of them but um he's important in, in 1990 he met uh a couple of brothers of Malcolm X and um and at the time he he's a huge admirer of Malcolm X and he you know wants to meet them and and my father is a, as a passion journalist and a consummate journalist he's always looking for a story <laughs> whatever's new and so when he had this opportunity to meet, you know, somebody he admired who was related to them, he said, great. And he listened to their story and he came away from the first conversation thinking, there's something new here about Malcolm X that we don't know and people should learn about this, about Malcolm. And, you know, and he came back to New York and he met one of his co colleagues here, Gil Noble, who hosts a show called Like It Is. Um, who also is very familiar with Malcolm X and his family. And he asked my father, which brother did you meet? So my father said it was uh, Philbert. He said, well, the brother you should meet and speak with is Wilfred. And Wilfred was Malcolm's oldest brother um, and best friend and uh, confidant throughout his life. So my father went back to Detroit, met Wilfred and had another conversation, which lasted eight hours. He recorded it. He recorded the other first conversation he had with Philbert. And this is what started... Uh, you know, the story of, of look, looking into Malcolm's life. And my father just couldn't let it go because he was learning so many new things. Um, and at that time, uh, I, I had just come home, you know, to visit from China. I was teaching English in China and he was telling me about this story. And I just said, well, dad, you know, this sounds like you're going to do a book. And he goes, I don't want to write a biography. <laughs> you know, I don't want to write a book, but this is larger than a magazine piece. So, um, you know, he, he talked about, he couldn't let it go. And, and, you know, he eventually said, okay, I, I'm going to do a book, a, a, a biography on Malcolm X. And, and he asked me, you know, at that point to join him, 
um, when I finally did return from China and, and I said, I agreed to, because I was also interested in journalism and, um, and I knew the kind of journalist my father was. And I had a feeling that I was going to learn things from my father that I might not learn in journalism school. So I, I agreed to do that. We did not expect this to take as long as it did. Um, but to me, good stories take as long as they do. This journey has been incredible. Meeting people who knew Malcolm, understanding more in fuller detail what those times were like in the 1950s and 60s and even prior. Um, and, and hearing these details on Malcolm's stories and even hearing from people who didn't like Malcolm, but had a respect for Malcolm um, and how he was leading, uh, how he was a leader, how he, respect him as a leader, respect for his love for the people, black people and achieving the civil rights here in America. Um, and, um, but you know, still not necessarily liking them, but just still having that respect for him. So it was really interesting learning these things. And after 30 years, my father passed away in 2018. Um, I, we were almost finished with the book and, and I just said, this book is, has to come out. And, and that's what I um, ended up making sure the book came out with the help of my family uh, who supported me during that time and continued to. And it, it really has, you know, it's really a, a labor of love and, and, a, and a family story of, of how we made sure this book came out um, for my father. This is his life's work. So, and I'm so happy to be a part of that too. And I'm glad he asked me to be a part of this journey. Well, I am tomorrow. That is just such a great story, and and thank you for telling it uh, so so well. Did you grow up in Long Island? I grew up in Long Island. I grew up in Huntington. Okay, so um, uh, that is. Are you still living in the New York area? Yes, I live in Harlem now. Great. Okay. So anyway, I'm delighted. Now, a little bit of uh, my own like self um, uh, disclaimer. I have not finished the book yet. But I okay. am, but I'm into it. And I really, I really, really appreciate the scholarship. I mean, it really is very, very, um, you know, and it, and it's also incredibly well written too. So, yes. so all of that. So, uh, so I haven't, haven't finished it yet. So I don't, I mean, I, I, I know the story, but I'm really, really anxious to kind of continue to learn uh, things that that I didn't know. You mentioned that your your father did learn things from his conversation that he didn't know. Are there? Can I? Can I? Some... I'm sorry, my bell is ringing. Really, can I just put you on mute for one sec? I'm Certainly, so sorry. That is perfectly I'm sorry. Fine. No, no problem. We're speaking with Tamara Payne who is the Pulitzer Prize winning co-author of the book, The Dead Arising, The Life of Malcolm X. She co-authored that with her father who passed away um, as the book was being completed. So she kind of completed the book and uh, she was just telling us about why her father kind of got intrigued by the story of Malcolm X by meeting a couple of his brothers. He was an investigative journalist. And so I'm I'm delighted that she is uh speaking uh speaking with us. So so Tamara, what I was going to ask you is um what might be some of the or a few of the things that you discovered by uh in in doing the research with your dad um that 
maybe was a little bit surprising to you or things that, you know, people don't know? Um, I think one of the things that became really clear in our research was the influence of uh, Marcus Garvey and Malcolm's life. Um, his parents were uh, followers of Marcus Garvey and his movement, UNIA, which stands, stands for the Universal Negro Improvement Association. Marcus Garvey was a leader, was a uh, uh, activist out of Jamaica who came to the United States and was about tying uh, Black people throughout the world together in a movement to uh, be proud of who they are as Black people wherever they are, build their own communities and controlling the econom economics of their community, and to rise up and be all that they can be, you know, um, because obviously in those times, and we're talking in 1920s, um, you Mount, Marcus Garvey, um, Black people, we're talking, so that's after World War One. We're, we're talking about Black people who are coming back from the, uh, fighting for the America, America's freedoms, right, um, in Europe, and they're coming back, and, and they are, uh, and, and they're being oppressed, and they're not being hired for jobs, they're not getting the benefits of being veterans, we're fighting for the rights of America, and protection of America, and, um, and, and people here in America are treating you know, African-Americans as if we have, we're not real citizens here and that we should be in and treated worse than animals, basically. And they were, were being lynched and, and there's this competition going on. And so what, you know, and what does that do to people who are marginalized like that? What does this do to their mindset? What does this do for how they produce? But the other thing what's happening is that they're being locked out of buying homes. They're being locked out of owning their land. They're being locked out of generating their fami familial wealth that can happen over you know years after that. So what Marcus Garvey's movement was to was to counter that amongst their amongst this marginalized group. And L Earl and Louise uh, Little, who are Malcolm's parents, uh, they're a part of this movement. And what if they were organizing, they moved to different areas. They started in Philadelphia after they had married, they met in Montreal at a, at a UNIA meeting. Um, and they move out to other places like Omaha, Nebraska, where Malcolm was born. He was born there in 1925. But um, be, when they first moved out there, um, a couple, a few years before they moved out there, was this incredible lynching that is still talked about, called the incident of 1919. And Omaha was still suffering from the repercussions of this. And what happened in that incident was the it was a lynching of Will Brown um, for for raping a woman. And it was basically this woman had made up this story of being raped in front of her boyfriend. And by this black man, she pointed out Will Brown. And Will Brown was a man who suffered rheumatoid arthritis and really physically couldn't, you know, have have done this. And certainly not in front of a, a man who could protect his girlfriend. Um, and so they, because she said it was a black man that did it, they mob you know, of the town of Omaha wanted to find out who did this. And they they found Will Brown hiding and they took him out. Um, he was arrested and the mob wanted to make an example out of him. And they took took him from the jail. The mayor of uh, Omaha, you know, wanted to say, hey, he deserves a trial. They didn't even want to go through that. They wanted to just lynch him. And they actually, if the mayor's going to stand in their way, they they almost lynched the mayor who was white. So he survived that, um, by the way, but Will Brown did not. And this 
this particular lynching was so heinous. Um, it wasn't simply that they hung this man. They uh, shot him down and they dragged his body through the streets of, of Omaha as well as burn him on a pyre, you know, burn his, his remains. And, and, there's and there are pictures of this and it's, and it's horrible. But this incident happened in 1919. Malcolm's family moves there soon after that. Um, a few years, by a few years, and there are still repercussions from this. When Malcolm's family, his parents, they're uh, organizing uh, families in Omaha, the local Klan chapter doesn't take kindly to this, and they ride up on his uh, on their doorstep. Um, Earl Little happens to not be home, but Louise is there with her children, and she's pregnant with Malcolm, and they tell her that, you know, we don't want you know, we don't want you, you guys are troublemakers, we want you to leave town. And they're, you know, and thankfully Earl wasn't there because they probably would have done this, you know, they would have done something similar to uh, Will Brown is what is believed. So this is the environment Malcolm was born into. Um, and so that's, that's the whole setup. We want to show Malcolm where he was born into as well in the context of his family. But getting back to this thing with Marcus Garvey is that this movement that his family was in, this philosophy of self-determination and being proud of who you are as Black people is something that stays with Malcolm throughout his life, especially at the end. We see him even returning more to that and even adjusting that for the times of where, when he dies in 1965. I know it's a roundabout answer, mm -hmm. but... <laughs> no, thank you. Thank you so much uh, yeah, for that. So let me, let's jump all the way to the present. Um mm -hmm. What would you say would be one or maybe two points that still today are very or most relevant from the legacy of Malcolm X for the world that we're living in today? Um, particularly at the end of his life, Malcolm um, was speaking really because he was traveling around the world and he was learning so much about what was happening in the world and he was processing that information. And he was speaking on that, particularly when he comes back to the United States from one of his trips, he talks about uh, the black vote. We're still talking about the black voting block today. Um, and he talked about having the black vote and how it can how it could swing elections, but not just simply swinging elections, swinging elections on the issues that affect the black community. And he was really just trying, really just hammering that message, message home. Um, but also other messages of how to, how to deal with uh, the different institutions that are in, in place. He's also talking about t changing the fight in the, in the civil rights struggle from civil rights, the fight for civil rights to the fight for black people's human rights in the United States. And um, and taking this on an international level, where you can have other countries who can sign on and support, and, and even bringing up the United States government on charges um, at the UN for violation of Black people's human rights here, and so and why need that conversation? We're still talking about that. Um, the talk of just how to analyze and and looking at people when people say things to you, um, you know, and and in his language, these. These are little smaller things and how he would use metaphors of um, analyzing people and, and what they mean, what they really mean. And it's like you really have to listen to his speeches on that. But one of the things I really want to explain, you know, people understand is that a lot of people see Malcolm as being somebody who uh, was preaching violence and that Black people should just pick up arms and shoot people up. 
And that's not what he was doing. At that time, what you had were groups of white people riding into black communities, particularly those who were organizing themselves to uh, vote because they were, uh, and, and we see this happening again, where not so much people writing to the communities, but we have the suppression of the black vote here in this country. And that was happening also back then in 1965. He was talking about when people write into your community and shoot you up and, and initiate violence, you have a right to defend yourself. He was preaching self-defense. These are important actions and, and facts of Malcolm and that he was he was talking about. Tamara Payne, thank you so much. Boy, you made me uh, smarter today. And, and really, I am delighted that our audience was able to hear you to talk a little bit about some of the early influences on Malcolm X's life and some of the things that probably uh, need to be maybe corrected in some of the common um, maybe misperceptions of what Malcolm X stood for. So thank you so much for taking the time to be with us on Just Love. Thank you for having me. Tamara I'm Payne, so happy to be here. Thank you. The co-author of the book, The Dead Are Arising, The Life of Malcolm X. Just love. Just love God. Just love your neighbor. Just love yourself. And our world will be more just and it will be more compassionate. We'll take a break and we'll be back in just a moment on the Catholic Channel, Sirius XM 129. Just do it. Just love. Just check out Monsignor Kevin Sullivan, who's here right now. Take it away, Monsignor. Welcome back to Just Love. Just do it. Just love God. Just love your neighbor. Just love yourself. And our world will be more just than it will be more compassionate. This is our weekly conversation about what's going on in the world through the prism of our Catholic social teaching. Um, a little bit of, I'll share a little bit with our listeners, a little bit of kind of my personal kind of reflections on Malcolm X in this way. Malcolm X was assassinated in 1965 in the Audubon Ballroom. I actually, during those years, took the subway that went right under the Audubon Ballroom from the Bronx down to Midtown Manhattan. So it was something that was very, very much aware in our consciousness. So I'm delighted that we got to speak with one of the co-authors of the new biography of Malcolm X. Thank you for joining us on Just Love. Thank you for taking the time to reflect a little bit with us, to raise your awareness about what's going on in the world through the prism of our Catholic social teaching. We say just love, just love God, just love your neighbor, just love yourself, because each of us can do that individually, and we should do it even more so during the Lenten time. And as we focus on those things, loving God, loving neighbor, loving ourselves more, when we all do that, the world does become more just, and it certainly becomes more compassionate. So thank you for joining us on the Catholic Channel. Sirius XM 129. You're listening to the Catholic Channel, 
Sirius XM 129.